okay, here's the bead that is not. Uh, I was like, if I have to paint this thing fluorescent orange, I, whatever it needs to be done, uh, can't have a can't have what happened Sunday. Like these guys were out looking for it, and it was in the prayer room. It had fallen down in between something, but uh, at least it was in the prayer room. You know, if, if it's going to be anywhere. But uh, good to see everybody tonight. Those of you online, welcome as well. I guess when you drove up, did you notice anything on the roof line tonight? Uh, yeah, so we got it lit up finally. Uh, it's something we've been thinking about the last couple of years, and this year we are making the call. Uh, a team of three guys come out and get on the roof and put them up, and. Um, you know, Jesus is the light of the world, so we want to uh, we want to kind of light it up and invite people. Uh, I, I was reminded, even myself, that um, uh, Pastor Trevor, you know, he got saved in part because Dana got him to come to a Christmas Eve service like uh, eleven years ago or something now, and so here he is, our assistant pastor. And so uh, God really does use uh, Christmas season and Easter season, you know, both of those seasons uh, significantly. Not that people aren't saved other times of the year, but those two uh, are very pivotal times. You can invite somebody, and sometimes they're a little more open. So I hope that uh, you'll invite people in the Christmas season. We'll have some other signs out there, the kind of Christmas at Calvary. We'll have those out soon, like right after Thanksgiving. We'll have those things out. Uh, by the way, the church sign up front, you probably notice it's dirty, it's dilapidated. You probably noticed that. Uh, if you didn't notice, uh, I'm talking about the ones on the marquee on the brick. That's getting replaced too. We've got someone working on a design, and so that will be nice and clean. And uh, but all these things take time, so we've got things that are being done little by little. These stairs, the next couple weeks, will be replaced finally, so you don't have to look at like this carpet right here. Um, all these things, uh, just little by little, and and some of that is uh, people in, and you know who you are that are going to do it for us internally. So thank you. Uh, for everyone's help and uh, just kind of getting it, uh, you know, it says um, it says uh, in the scriptures that the Lord's house was in disrepair, and so we're trying to make sure that uh, those little things—they're not big deals. I mean, we had to we had to save up to even do these things, but but thank you for everybody's help, and and hopefully during the Christmas season we'll see some people come to Jesus because we got the building lit up and. And more importantly, we'll have the Word of God in here. One of the things that they can't see from the outside, I love seeing all those shoeboxes by the cross. You can't see that outside. And, uh, and I guess they will be headed on airplanes very soon. Uh, we're going to miss them, but we're glad that they're leaving because that means they're going to be going into the hands of kids all over the world. And uh, I love looking over there and seeing that because uh, it's just the heart of all of you that served and gave, and, and we know that they'll... Uh, get those in their hands, and, and hopefully the gospel uh, as well. So I don't have anything which is great uh, in the way of additional announcements other than to welcome you and have you turn to Joel chapter 2. Uh, I, well, I do have one thing. Again, I remind you, uh, Pastor Trevor will be sharing this coming Sunday. Uh, I'll be uh, out of town this weekend and then uh, with Thanksgiving with Sarah's parents. But... Um, uh, he'll be sharing this coming Sunday. So uh, please show up if you're in town. Trevor would really appreciate it. Um, and uh, I know God's put a good word on his heart. Uh, so Joel chapter 2, we'll pick up with where we left off. And we had covered uh, chapter 2 up through verse 17. So we'll pick up with verse 18. We'll finish the entire second chapter tonight. But I'm not going to read, uh, for the sake of time, the entire rest of the uh, chapter at the outset here, we'll just go through it as we go. But I do want to read the first several verses of our text tonight. So picking it up uh, with me with verse 18, 
Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations, but I will remove far from you the northern army and will drive him away into a barren and desolate land with his face toward the eastern sea and his back towards the western sea. His stench will come up and his foot, his foul odor will rise because he has done monstrous things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. Do not be afraid, you beasts of the field, for the open pastures are springing up, and the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their strength. We'll stop right there. Father, we just come before you this evening. We are gr- just grateful to be here tonight. Uh, Lord, to worship you in song, as we've already done, and Lord, just to lift our voices to you. Uh, Lord, just to see one another and just to encourage one another, even if it's just a quick smile. And uh, Lord, just to know that uh, all of us, Lord, are here because we have the same Father, we have the same Lord, we have the same Savior. Lord, we are thankful for this time now in your word. We're thankful for the building that you have allowed us to uh, to meet in. And Lord, so many of our brothers and sisters around the world don't even have that. And we, we pray for them, Lord, that uh, you'd provide what they need as well. But Lord, even... As we gather here tonight, we pray that your spirit would uh, be mighty in our presence. I pray for your anointing on this time, your anointing on the teaching. I pray your anointing on me. I need your help, your strength, your wisdom beyond any preparation. And Lord, we pray that uh, you would speak to each and every heart that which we need to hear. And Lord, we would leave here encouraged, uh, Lord, and even strengthened by your spirit and by your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The land of Judah had already suffered, as you might recall, going back to the beginning of this book, the land of Judah had already suffered and endured this cataclysmic devouring of nearly every living thing, and God had allowed an almost indescribable swarm of locusts to strip the land bare. And I get annoyed when I have grubs messing with my front yard, much less every single thing uh, just completely stripped bare. But although the prophet Joel, um, he had called the people to lament and to mourn over their conditions and the conditions of the land, he had called them to gather together and to cry out to the Lord. And the prophet also warned them that the locusts were not the only thing that they had to consider, that uh, Uh, He likened another army that would come that would not be locust, but it would be a literal army that would invade the land. And we saw at the outset of chapter 2 that as he had said that this army would be coming that was similar to locust, but worse in many respects, we saw at the outset of chapter 2 a trumpet was blown, an alarm that the day of the Lord The day of his reckoning, the day of his judgment was coming. It was imminent. That God was going to allow this army of of mighty men and of chariots to come and to trample the very land that, that God had given to the children of Israel. He warned that nobody 
would escape this marauding army that was set in battle array to come against the land of Judah. But the Lord appears to even look further out than judgment at that time. If we go back to verses 10 and 11. You can look there later, but you can make a note in your Bibles. Verse 10 and 11, into the, he, he seems to look even further into the future at a day when the heavens are going to tremble, when the sun and the moon is going to become dark, it's not going to give their light, and the stars will be diminished. And the Lord's army, the Lord's army, which includes angelic hosts as well as the saints that are already there and all the saints that will be coming with Jesus, and the Lord's own army, led by, and you might see back in verses 10 and 11, it says, the one, capitalized, the one, which is none other than the king of kings himself, pointing towards Jesus. But the Lord's army and the one who leads the army, being Christ himself, is going to execute the word of God culminating in the final fulfillment of the day of the Lord because there's a lot of little epochs of the day of the Lord building to the final crescendo of the finishing act of the day of the Lord. In other words, there have, many, there have been, and I think you would agree if you studied the Scriptures, there have been many days of God's judgment already. We would not agree with that. God's judgment has come many times, the worst of which we've probably seen on a global scale, the Noahic flood, but it's come many times. But there's been many days of God's judgment and many days of His reckoning, but a final day that will be the end of the end, is coming. And Peter even warned that because people have been saying this for so long, that people say, ah, everybody's, pastors in the 50s were saying that. Pastors in the 70s were saying that. Pastor Chuck was saying that before he went home to be with the Lord, right? And people will say that, and they, they are fulfilling prophecy just in their mocking. To all of this divine and urgent revelation... The prophet Joel uh, pleads yet again to his own brethren, his own Jewish brethren there in Israel, to turn the Lord with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. And I have to tell you, the Lord has to spur this in you. It's not even easy just to kind of uh, work this up. It has to. Now, the, the choice to fast and pray, we can do, but you need the Lord to actually soften us. But he called the people to call a sacred assembly to gather the people and to stop whatever they were doing. Even if they were planning a wedding day, they were supposed to stop everything and get to this sacred assembly and immediately gather together in humility and repentance before the Lord. He wanted the people to, as you might recall, and this was in our last study, rend their hearts, not just their garments. He wasn't looking for an outward religious show. It had to be an inward work. The idolatry of the land, the people's pride, their immorality, their stubbornness, their self-reliance. Sounds like a description of our country, doesn't it? All of these conditions are first issues in the heart. Then they manifest on the outside with unwanted pregnancies, drunkenness, divorces. But those things that start in the heart, they always bring individuals, but entire nations to destruction. That's what happens. They start out small. 
A little bit of cancer left untreated doesn't stay a little bit of cancer, does it? Begins to eat the entire body, it eats the entire individual, eats the entire nation. Now, in spite of all that God had warned of, and all that he had already allowed to come in the case of the locusts, which he also says he sent the locusts, he didn't just allow them, he said he, he called them his army. All that he allowed, all that he had sent, there was still mercy. There was still grace. There was still the opportunity, because they were still breathing, there was still the opportunity for the people to humble themselves and not only avert the coming disaster that Joel had just talked about in the early part of chapter 2, that of being slaughtered by an approaching army, uh, but for both themselves and the land to be restored. That's why we keep preaching repentance and praying for our country, because God, at any moment, could be people dropping to their knees and saying, Lord, have mercy. That, that the opportunity was still there for them to be spared, not just spared, but spared and renewed. It'd be one thing to be spared, but, but to be made better than you were at any other prior point. And the Lord still offers this hope to anyone who's willing to yield. Do you believe that? That God's still offering this to a yielded heart. If you're taking notes, you see the title tonight. The Lord who restores his gracious protection and restoration. Back to verses 18 and 19. Uh, then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine. It's amazing uh, that right now, I'm talking about right now tonight, here on November the 15th, right now tonight, the eyes and the attention of most of the entire world, at least anybody that has a digital device that's getting any kind of news, is on this very same land mentioned here. The whole world's attention. Even people that had not thought about Israel in months are on college campuses protesting. They hadn't thought about Israel in a long, long time. We think about Israel a lot because it's directly related to what we know is coming. I've been preaching on Israel for years. But the whole world's attention is on this very same land being mentioned here by Joel. But notice what God says. He says, his land. The Lord will be zealous for his land. That's the same land that's in the news right here. God calls it his land. We might not want to forget that, right? It's his land. Now, of course, the whole planet belongs to him. But he has a special love for that little stretch of land and for some reason we know, and some, kind, some we don't even know all the reasons behind God's love for that little area. But the land of ancient and, uh, ancient and modern Israel was the former land of Canaan. You guys know it was Canaan before Israel came in. Where Israel wasn't even a, a, a nation until Jacob becomes Israel, and then later the 12 tribes. But uh, the former land of Canaan that was promised to Abraham as descendants, hence you get the name the promised land because it was promised to Abraham's descendants, not just any of his descendants, because Abraham has descendants from Hagar and from Torah, and he's got other descendants, but it was the descendants from the son of promise, which was Isaac, and then to Isaac came Jacob and the rest of the tribes. But it was hence called the promised land. But the land itself doesn't really belong 
to the tribes as much as it fully belongs to God. Now, obviously, God gave it to the tribes, even land they've never even taken possession of, uh, which they will eventually see um, in the millennium reign of Christ. But it, all of it belongs to God. And, and because it belongs to God, he can do whatever he wants with it. Amen? Because you belong to God, he can do whatever he wants with you and with me. And that's the way it should be. We were bought with a price. And God can give the land to whoever he wants to. He can do whatever he chooses with it. But he's not going to change what he's already said. It will come to pass. And nobody or no nation can alter what God intends to do with his land. And as he miraculously placed Israel in the land, it was a miracle that Israel got there in the first place because obviously they had been in 400 years of slavery and they had no way to get out of it unless God sent a slew of plagues upon Egypt and finally resulting in parting the Red Sea and an all of Pharaoh's army being destroyed. That's the whole reason. And they spent 40 years in a holding pattern. But 400 years, then 40 years later, God miraculously planted them in the land, and they went from planting land to possessing the land. Now, all that was a miracle in the first place. Otherwise, there is no land. At least, I mean, not, not under the children of Israel and the tribes. But then, fast forward to 1948, when Israel was replanted in the land, after they had been not a nation, obviously the ethnicity of the Jewish people still existed all over the world, but they, they didn't have a nation anymore. They're put back in the land with the same name, same language, and same place, and same capital of Jerusalem. And you can see why so many people and nations for all of history, and certainly right now in 2023, are desperately trying to uproot Israel from the land, trying to pull them out of the land. And they're going to fail, by the way. Everyone who tries is going to fail and has failed because the sovereign plan of God was set in motion long before and nothing can stop it. Not the United Nations, not terrorist groups. Nobody can stop. Notice in verse 18 that God says he's zealous, zealous for the land, passionate for the land. By the way, if you go to Israel, and I've gone twice and Obviously, our third trip is in jeopardy currently. Uh, for this coming trip, it doesn't mean we, if it doesn't happen, and it's not been canceled yet, but I mean, if it doesn't happen, we will definitely be rescheduling. Um, but he's zealous for the land. He's pa uh, passionate for the land. If you go to Israel, they, a lot of times people will just refer to it as the land. Just, they'll just say the land. Everyone knows that means the promised land, the land of Israel. But it has been... a land that God has always been zealous for, and he'll continue to be zealous. He has a passionate uh, heart for that little stretch of earth, and why? Well, he sent his son to be born in that land, born in Bethlehem, which we're going to, everyone will hear Bethlehem, not as often as they'll hear the North Pole, but they'll hear Bethlehem plenty in the coming weeks. I'm sure I'll mention Bethlehem plenty of times. But he sent his son to be born in the land. He sent his son to live and preach and teach in that land. He sent his son to die for humanity in that land. And he sent his son to rise from the dead in that land. 
And we're getting closer and closer by the day of him sending his son a second time to rule and reign in that land. Do you see why that land, it's always part of the messianic plan of God, the redemptive plan of God. Many evil things by Israel. Israel as a nation is far from uh, perfect. That's why they're under the judgment even in this book. Israel themselves is, as a nation, as a people, were guilty of plenty of evil things. Jesus said they killed the prophets. Stephen gets up and preaches the same thing. But many evil things have been done by Israel, but also many things have been done, been done by the enemies of Israel. And that's mentioned in the text. We'll get to that in just a bit. Uh, many evil things have been done in the land. Child sacrifice was in the land. Immorality was in the land. All kinds of things. False prophets, false teachers. Many evil things have been done in the land. But God will someday cleanse that land of all the violence, of all the idolatry, of all the pride, of all the false religion, all the things. He's going to sanctify it under the rule and reign of Jesus, which we understand is the thousand-year reign of Christ, the millennium reign which is coming, which may be a lot closer than we think. It could be, you know, it's a thousand years, but we, it could be five years, ten years, twenty years, fifty years from that actually coming. We don't know. But even more than the land, the Lord has a plan for his people because God loves people more than dirt. Although we're made of dirt, right? So, but God has a plan for his people. And it says in verse 18 that he pities his people people. The word pity here, it means to have compassion on. It doesn't mean like pat him on the head like, oh, I feel so sorry. You know what I mean? Compassion. He has compassion for his people. In the Hebrew, that's what it means, just to, to spare or to have compassion for. To be clear, all that, that already have and all that ever will come to Christ are his people. So if you're saved, you are his people. We, we as people here, you know, so we, we're all his people. If we've come, whether you're Jew, whether you're Gentile, if you've been saved, you are the people of God. But Joel is speaking here specifically about the people of Judah as part of Israel here. Obviously, there's a larger umbrella, but here he's speaking of his people, the children, descendants of Abraham, specifically the land of Judah, ultimately only those that are the blood descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that are in Yeshua, that are in Jesus, that are, that are in Messiah, him and them and them in him, ultimately only the, those saved descendants like the apostles, like Peter, James, John, Stephen, Philip, that they worked with the apostles, uh, those will be the Israel saved by God. That that group will be the Israel saved by God. But his compassion for the nation, even the lost house in the house of Israel, Jesus said he came for the lost house of Israel, even the lost within the house, God still has a heart for the whole nation as a whole based on his faithfulness, not their faithfulness. Amen? And the vast majority, I mean, God does call us to be faithful when when you get to heaven, if you're saved, he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. So we're all called to be faithful. But even our walk is more based, far more based on his faithfulness 
than our faithfulness. So we're called to be faithful. That's why he gave us the Spirit, to help us be faithful. If he didn't give us Spirit, we didn't even have a chance to be faithful. But it's based on his faithfulness that Israel, he has a compassion for his people and that they would fulfill the calling that he gave them. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 24, it's up on the screen. So God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. It's always God remembering the covenant because people forget, they forget everything about God, much less his covenant. People can't even remember the most basic things God's asked them to do sometimes. Even good, solid believers will someday, sometimes forget, oh, totally forgot to pray. Right? I've been praying for years, I totally forgot. Whether it's over a meal, whether it's over an issue, whether it's over a problem. But God will always remember His covenant because His covenant uh, is going to be ratified, it's going to be fulfilled because of His faithfulness. In Hebrews 8.10, go to the New Testament, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. Even in the New Testament, he's speaking specifically. Of course, Hebrews was written to Jewish believers. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. That I will be their God and they shall be my people. Same language that Joel uses, my people. By the way, our salvation... Um, again, uh, as we're his people, um, in the same way, he writes on the tablets of our hearts his law, but it's sealed by the Holy Spirit because he puts the Holy Spirit in us. That's what transforms the way we think, our heart, our mind, our thoughts. In verses 19 through 25, and I read a little bit of... um, a part of that portion up through 22. Um, let me finish from where I left off at 22. Let's read verse 23 through 25, and then you'll have to remember what we read up through 22 just for the sake of time. But verse 23, uh, we, we dropped off right at verse 22. It says, the fig tree and the vine shall yield their strength. Verse 23, be glad then you children of Zion and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully, and he will cause the rain to come down for you, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month, the threshing floors shall be full of wheat, and the vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. We'll stop right there. So we've, we've now read up through, but I want to go, now go back and look at verses 19 through 25. Um, together. It does appear that there was an immediate uh, as well as a near-term fulfillment of what was promised uh, in the land of Judah uh, that takes place in verses 19 through 25, which is uh, really good news because he basically is talking about the land coming back to life and the land once again blooming and um, all of a sudden food be plentiful, all those things. So it does appear that that actually took place in Joel's lifetime. But then there's a greater fulfillment near the end of chapter 2, and we'll read that in just a few minutes, where there's even a greater fulfillment that's well after Joel's lifetime, well after the time that he was there 
uh, in the land of Judah. As I noted in our, in our previous study in verses 1 through 17, uh, and it's archived out on the website. If you didn't see that, you can go back and look at that. But um, as I noted in verses 1 through 17, our previous study, uh, it does seem, and that's why we called a Wednesday night sacred assembly that we did outside there uh, under the stars. Thankfully, it didn't rain. We had a beautiful night. A little cold that night, but we had fire going, and we just spent some time worshiping and praying and calling out to the Lord. But uh, it does appear that the people did, in fact, rend their hearts, which is a, a beautiful answer to prayer. They did, in fact, rend their hearts and cried out to the Lord uh, as best we can tell that there was some repentance that really took place. And what followed was the 40-year reign of the initially uh, godly King Joash. He was a child king that grew, um, grew up and uh, became king at the age of six. But he initially was very godly for much of his life. Uh, and they did see at that time in the land of Judah a time of restoration. They saw, saw a time of prosperity and relative peace under the rule of Joash. Now Joash, as you see many times in some of the kings and the Old Testament, Joash did not finish well. And so the judgments and the warnings and the destruction that was spoken of in the first half of chapter 2 was still going to come to pass. There was just a reprieve in that time period. And the reprieve lasted longer than Joash. It went into other kings. It was still, and this was again one of the things that would cause people in Israel and Christians today to slide away from God because when God delays something that He said is going to come, then people get the false impression that it's never going to happen. Oh, if it would have happened... It would have happened by now, and they, it could be, the door could be swinging at that very moment. And eventually it did come. The other thing, just a note in your Bibles, is um, uh, there, you know, verses 21 through 24, for example, that's Joel speaking. But the majority of verses uh, 19, the uh, majority of verses 19 all the way through verse 32 is God speaking. You'll see the quotations, and sometimes the prophet kind of yields the floor to God himself to do the speaking. So Joel is speaking uh, at some points, but the majority of it is God actually speaking directly. Um, and so that's good, just something to know. Uh, but for a time, in verses 19 through 25, uh, Judah did see the grace and the mercy of God poured out is as they did rend their hearts, God began to restore what had been destroyed. There was a reversal, uh, a reversal of what had been devastated in the land um, through the judgment of the locusts that, that he had sent. Uh, but in, back in verse 20 where he says, uh, but I will remove... Far from you, the north, so this is God speaking. You can see the quotation start just before the word but. But I will remove far from you the northern army. So this is God speaking directly. And will drive him, him being the king or the leader of that, into a barren and desolate land with his face toward the eastern sea and his back towards the western sea. And his stench will come up and his foul odor will arise because he has done monstrous things. 
So here in verse 20, um, this describes Assyria, the Assyrian Empire, uh, which at a later time did in fact, uh, many of you probably know this, uh, at a later time, Syria, Assyria, Assyria did in fact capture and plunder the northern kingdom and the ten tribes of the northern kingdom. So Assyria did overrun the northern kingdom at a later period. It hadn't happened at this point. But Judah, which is Judah and Benjamin, the, the, the southern, uh, southern kingdom, Judah was, the nation of the southern kingdom of Judah was spared, and God intervened about five kings, well, definitely five kings, five kings after Joash, five kings later, under the reign of Hezekiah, the Assyrian army has Jerusalem surrounded, and that at that point when Jerusalem is surrounded, five kings after Joash, Jerusalem is surrounded, and God sends an angel of the Lord, and he kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers at one time. And at that time, Assyria is defeated, and they head back to Assyria. And they're never a threat again to Judah, but they, again, they, they had already, by that point, they had already overrun the northern kingdom when that takes place. But none of this, all this is in the future right here when Joel's speaking, none of that had happened. The Assyrian army hadn't even, hadn't even taken the ten northern kingdom tribes. So this is well before either the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom had been judged, which again can lull both kingdoms into the false idea that God's just fine with what we're doing. He, he's not really good. He says this judgment coming, but it's not actually come. So, but later, Assyria themselves, notice that uh, God says he is going to drive them with their back towards uh, the Western Sea, which would be their back towards the uh, Mediterranean Sea. But their stench will come up, where they're, they're going to die. And just like when something dies, it rots. And that kingdom is going to die, and the odor is going to... Because they've done monstrous things, well, if you've ever studied any history at all, or ever watched anything on the Assyrian Empire, they were as callous and cruel a people as the world has ever seen. That's why Jonah, who was sent to preach to them, what, tried to get in a boat and go the opposite direction. He's like, if anyone deserves hellfire, it's them, Lord. And he's like, you've got it all wrong. I will not go there. So the Assyrian Empire would later be judged and God would use the Babylonian Empire to judge the Assyrian Empire, which neither right now had come against Israel. Babylon didn't even exist as an empire at this point. Assyria had not yet come against either kingdom, but God was saying that he doesn't say in this passage that Babylon would actually destroy Assyria, and later Persia would destroy Babylon, later Greece would destroy Persia. So each successive empire would destroy the one before. But for a time, Judah did see, for a time, remember this season, under the, the rule of Joash, for a time Judah saw the mercy of God poured out in a reversal of what had devastated the land, and that being the locust, again, back to chapter 1. And Assyria, like all the other nations 
Um, no one's excluded. Just like God would judge his own people, Assyria would be judged for their sin. Babylon, eventually, as I mentioned, they'll be judged for their sin. And even Babylon, who would defeat Assyria, would eventually be the ones God would use to finally bring the judgment in the early chapter 2. It's not going to be Assyria, but Babylon, who would judge Assyria and also come against Jerusalem, they would be the one to level Solomon's temple, the first temple that would be built. So Babylon would come and thus fulfill the urgent warning of the first half of chapter 2. Now after Babylon, remember Israel eventually uh, under the king of Persia, they're allowed to go back and rebuild the walls. Nehemiah, Ezra, they're about to go back to rebuild the walls and the temple. That would come later. But after Babylon and after Persia, later would come Rome would end up destroying Jerusalem. The Ottomans, under the Ottoman Empire, would also come and, and wreak violence and havoc all in uh, the land of Israel. And later, still yet to come, the Antichrist is going to unleash another wave of terror, the likes of which the world has never seen. That will still be coming to the land, the very same land of Israel. But for a season, I'm kind of setting it, so the Bible... Have you read the Bible? The Bible does not move like this. It, it goes back and forth in time because God is not in a set of time, so he will actually, he'll actually confuse people at some time. Now, the longer you study it, you're not confused by it anymore. You, you, you kind of settle in and understand how God is speaking. But for a season here, to go back to the scene here, for a season, Judah does see a time of refreshing. You know, we get on our knees every Sunday. I would be, obviously, I would love a permanent repentance, but I would quite, I would settle for a season of repentance. How about you, right? I mean, your kids and grandkids would benefit from a season of repentance in this country, even if it's like for the next 40 years or the next 20 years or five years. I mean, at least in that amount of time, even if the nation itself doesn't fully come around, a lot of souls would be saved, right? So that's kind of the way I've always looked at it, saying no matter what, any bit, of, you know, the, the Jesus revolution in the early 70s, America didn't, didn't get its heart right with God, but a lot of people got saved. And some of you are still part of that harvest sitting here today. I mean, and again, I cite people like Pastor Greg Laurie and others, they got saved in that, and God's used them to bring many, many other people to Christ. So even a partial time of refreshing or a, or a partial revival, if you want to call it that, I mean, it's, it's not that there was complete, it didn't turn Israel around because a few kings later, guess where they were at? Right back in the same idolatry. And we've seen awakenings under the Jonathan Edwards and others. There's been awakenings in our own country, but eventually people matriculate back to, and Israel followed this pattern again and again, right? Get in lots of trouble with God, repent, lose a bunch of lives, all kind, then repent, get it right, there'd be seasons. But we pray for our own nation that uh, we would see a season of refreshing, that we would season, see a season of a harvest and a revival. Uh, our job, we obviously can't make that happen, our job is to still be a Joel in our own time and land. Amen? Not, not for you to write scripture, not for you to write a little book of the Bible, but to be a Joel in the light of, and, and the point of just being a light. 
pointing people to the Lord. Same as John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God. Our, our job is to be a Joel, is to be a John, to point people to the grace and mercy of Jesus. And even when I, was, I came up here to check out the guys, you know, putting on the lights, I mean, I talked to them about the Lord, invited them to church. They responded to all my texts except for stuff like that. You know, they responded to money things and all that kind of stuff. But if it was, you know, but that's not my job is not to convince people. It's just to present. And Joel wasn't called to convince. He was there to plead with them. But it was still going to have to be them to decide if they were going to uh, repent or not. And just as the Lord restores individual lives and He restores individual souls and. All of you have a testimony how God has individually restored you from what you once were into a new creation, which is what the Bible says we are. Anyone in Christ is a new creation. Um, just as the Lord can and does restore individual lives and individual souls, God can also restore crops and trees and fields. Isn't that good to know? And lands and neighborhoods. And communities. There's communities in America that hardly anyone, probably none of you, would walk alone at at night in this country. Did you know God could actually completely transform a place like that? I mean, there's places all over the world like that. It's not just in our country. There's places all over the world that every you get off the plane and say, I can go here, but do not go here. Under any circumstances, do not go there. And yet God could redeem and make safe and make completely different because it's the work of the Lord. Only God can do that. We can't make, we can't make the Sahara Desert grow, but in the millennium reign of Christ, it's going to bloom. It absolutely will. The Bible talks a lot about the, the waste places are going to be lush again. In verse 21, uh, he, he says... Now, obviously, as I mentioned, this is, um, appears to be Joel speaking. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. A little interlude here of uh, Joel speaking, but he says to be glad and rejoice. First, he says, Fear not. Verse 22, do not be afraid, you beast of the field. For the open pastures are springing up. The tree bears its fruit, and the fig tree and the vine. Yields their strength. Fig tree again is a picture of Israel. But the post locust famine caused a drought. And to compound the drought, God also withheld rain. So not only was everything eaten away by the locust, then God withheld rain on top of everything gone. Because if there's rain, seeds can actually germinate and, and reap, but not if God doesn't send rain. And so they got a double barrel problem. They got the locusts, ate everything, and then rain didn't fall. But God was saying here that he was going to graciously replace and nourish things with healing rain because he goes on to talk about, uh, all the way through verse 25, this latter rain, this former rain that was going to be uh, poured out on the land. After the locusts, uh, after the locusts, um, there was this intense fear because you had the, the locusts eat everything, that's all gone. Then you have a drought, drought set in. There was this intense fear among the people of starving to death 
or not being able to survive. And we in this country, we panic when it's just two inches of snow and Publix is out of bread. You know, like in, uh, you saw people panicking when the supply chain was slowing down and COVID and stuff like that. And, and the farms were still producing everything. But just a little, bit of a, a little bit of a ripple causes quite a bit of fear. Imagine if it's real. If it's not like, hey, it's not going to be like a three-day delay or even you can't get but so much toilet paper. No, zero food anywhere. And no rain is coming. So they had an intense fear of starvation or would they even survive and then comes chapter 2 where, again, Joel tells them that an army is coming, not of locusts, but an army of men. And it brought great fear and terror among the people who were already worried about starving to death that they could die by the, the edge of the sword and a siege upon the city of thousands of marauding troops. And he said, Joel said, to go back and, and read it, in the first half of chapter 2, he said that the approaching army would cause the faces of the people to lose their color. In other words, they would drain like almost ready to faint. That they would be completely horrified and petrified, frozen with fear. But the grace, and forgive me, look what it says, fear not, O land. Do not be afraid, you beasts of the field. The fear... But the, uh, the fear was pervasive, but the grace and forgiveness of God brings a reversal of fear. The grace and forgiveness of God brings a reversal of fear. And notice, now notice in, in, in verse 21, it's a command, uh, fear not. Verse 22, do not be afraid. It's a command. And it's also a command to recognize and rejoice because he doesn't fear not, for the Lord has done marvelous things. It's a reminder here to not be afraid, but also to remember and recognize what God has already done for the nation, for sending someone like Joel. That's a marvelous thing. I mean, he didn't have to send Joel. I've learned firsthand that fear flees when we rejoice even before God's done marvelous things. We choose to rejoice before. Now, again, he's already done marvelous things. We usually lose total perspective of the marvelous things he's already done. We, we all do. But if there's something you're specifically praying for that hasn't happened, we have to learn to rejoice before that happens. Amen? In this command to be glad in verse 23, to be appreciative of uh, any of God's undeserved kindness, be glad, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully, and he will cause the rain to come down on you. This command to be glad, this command to be appreciative of any of God's undeserved kindness, because, again, anything God gives us is mercy. We don't really deserve the kindness of God. We have to remember what he's done in the former. Now when it says former rain and latter rain, according to, it's up on the screen, Deuteronomy eleven fourteen, 14, uh, this was related to the spring rains and the fall rains. Spring rain, and so 
Israel would continue to see, if God would send the spring rains and the fall rains, that they would continue to always have crops that would be every year on a cycle, reblooming, reharvested. But if he stops sending the spring and the fall rain, then everything everything is just depleted, destroyed, everything stops. Ancient Israel did not have irrigation systems. Now, Israel is the, is the country that introduced drip irrigation, and that's all been in our lifetime. It's an amazing little thing. They had these little hoses that are flat. You might see them outside of a Wendy's in the flower beds and stuff like that with these little perforated holes, and they seep out and it actually saves thousands and millions of gallons of, of water. But they didn't have those drip irrigation hoses back then. Uh, the nation at that time was 100% dependent on rain sent by God. There was no fresh water supply. They used uh, cisterns and stuff for drinking water, but when it came to irrigating fields, they only depended on the rain, whether God sent it or he didn't send it. But this um, latter, this, uh, this former rain and latter rain, it also points to the second coming of Jesus being the latter rain and the first coming being the former rain, which he's already come. But now we're waiting for the latter, the outpouring that will come with his second coming. Verse 24, the people, uh, it says, the threshing floors will be full of wheat, the vats shall overflow with new wine. The people went from near starvation to an overflow, to plenty of harvest, to actually being able to fill up the vats to the point that they could not contain it all. We desire... We pray for an overflow of new souls, disciples, people that have raised up. That's the overflow we're seeking, an overflow of the work of the Spirit, an overflow of the joy of the Lord. Those are the things that we're praying for. And obviously we do care that we actually have food on the table. We actually do care that we have some money in the bank and all those things. But, but the overflow uh, for us today is the overflow work of the Spirit in the New Covenant um, we see, he says here, um, the threshing floors will be full of wheat, the vats will overflow with new wine and oil. Um, in the new covenant, we see the blood of Jesus. And in the oil here, so the new wine and the oil, we also kind of see a foreshadow of the new wine being the new covenant through Jesus and the oil being the Holy Spirit, that everyone will get oil in there, if you're really saved, the oil of the Spirit in your lamps the wise and foolish virgins. So we kind of see some of these things pointing again. In verse 25, uh, it says, So I will restore to you the years the swarming locust has eaten. Again, God's speaking, starting verse 25, you see the quotation start. It's back to the Lord speaking there. I will restore to you, talking to all the people, all the land of Judah there. Um, me, and I'm, I'm sure many of you have been saving any length of time, uh, I have done this. I'm sure many of you have done this. I have personally shared this verse with many a person say, God can restore what the locusts have eaten up in your life. I've had people say, I can never fix this. I can never go back and repair this. I can never fix what I've done in that marriage. I said, That's true. You can't. But guess who can? Who can restore what the locusts have eaten away in your life. You couldn't have known that these things would happen, but God, and you certainly can't fix many of these things, but God can. So many a person has been encouraged. 
by this passage. And if you've ever wondered where it is in the Bible, now you know. So that, uh, there it is right there. <coughs> Jesus said, or, the, or it says of the Lord in, in Revelation 25, then he who sat on the throne, behold, I make all things new. Only Jesus can make anything that's dead new, not just our souls, but anything, relationships, anything that seems to have been eaten away over the years. Verse 26 and 7, as we come near close here, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name. We didn't read these verses. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never be put to shame. Then you shall know, this is still God speaking, then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. Those two verses God's speaking quite powerfully and authoritatively. They're going to eat in plenty. They're going to praise his name. They're never going to be put to shame. And they're going to know that he is in the midst of them. These things were partially fulfilled. Everything God says here was, was partially fulfilled in the days of Joel. But a day is coming when Israel will f- finally fulfill its calling in the Lord. I mean, certain people in Israel, Moses fulfilled his calling, Daniel fulfilled his calling, David fulfilled his calling, but the nation as a whole never really has fulfilled its calling. Does that make sense? Individuals have, but the nation as a whole has yet to really fulfill its calling. That's why I never took the full amount of land that was given to Abraham. That has yet to happen. So there's a partial fulfilling, um, but the day is coming when Israel will fulfill its calling, and amazing enough, the day is coming, if you're in Christ, you're going to see it in the millennium, then Israel's going to be loved by all the nations. Right now Israel's hated by the nations. The United Nations, if they ever have anything negative to say, it's almost always about Israel, right? Uh, so the nations will end up loving Israel, and the nations as well as Israel will worship Jesus as king and priest there on Mount Zion. Uh, this is what Jesus was speaking of when he said to Israel as a nation, speaking to the city of Jerusalem just before he went to the cross, and I've quoted this numerous times, he says, for I say you shall see me no more till you say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So he was telling the nation of Israel just before he went to the cross that until the nation repents and believes in him as the Messiah, they would not see him as their king and their Lord. He would go back to heaven, but when he comes a second time, the veil will be taken away, the eyes will be opened, and Israel as a nation will fulfill this in a much greater way than it was ever fulfilled in Joel's lifetime. Does that make sense? So these two passages, they had a partial fulfillment then, but there's a far greater fulfillment yet to come. And we're, we're probably way closer to that now than, well, we are for sure. We're way closer to that. But we're probably even closer than we think to this happening. Uh, last verses, let's close with these uh, Final verses from verses 28 and 32. They should look very familiar to you uh, because we read them not too long ago in our Sunday study. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever 
calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Now we know that the closing words here from God absolutely had a latter fulfillment, right? Compared to the day of Joel where he saw some of these things take place. Uh, so we know these have a latter fulfillment. Our Acts study and our Joel study are now intersecting. So we had a Sunday, we have a Sunday study in Acts. Joel, now both books are intersecting here. Of course, they intersect indirectly quite a bit, but here they're dire directly intersecting because Peter stands up uh, on Pentecost and quotes nearly word for word every single thing that I just read except for the latter part of verse 32. And instead of saying, it shall come to pass afterward, Peter says it shall come to pass in the latter days. So that he was saying that the afterward was now here, uh, which he's going on to say that it, here it means afterward, but he changes and says it shall come to pass in the latter days because they were then in the moment that this was being fulfilled in a way that was never fulfilled in Joel's lifetime. So there was a far greater fulfillment uh, that was coming that Joel is seeing here, God's doing the speaking with the outpour of the Holy Spirit, something that never happened to Joel. He never saw the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as we saw in Pentecost, the mighty wind coming, the fire resting upon, and people speaking in one language and everybody hearing it in their own language. That was the, the work of the Spirit. And other things that were taking place uh, that day that, that probably Luke doesn't even record, but uh, Peter, by quoting this, tells us that much of that was all happening then. Uh, and yet, there's still a final fulfillment of even this that will take place in the millennium reign of Christ when everyone that is there with Jesus will be sinless at that point. If you're saved and you come back with the Lord, uh, everything you have, your thoughts, won't be tainted at all by this world. So there's even a greater fulfillment of this coming. Um, and so that's in verses 28 and verse 29. But then in verse 30 and 31, the judgment of God, he reverts back, God speaking himself, going in and out of what we would consider a linear timeline here. Uh, the judgment of God will and still must be poured out on the nations. Will be and must be. Uh, God will always judge sin. And so the rebellion of the nation still has to be judged as well as the covenant and calling and restoration of Israel will and still has to be accomplished. So the judgment has to still come. Israel still has to fulfill her calling, which has not fully taken place. And Israel will come out of the tribulation period, also called the time of Jacob's trouble. They'll have to come through that, those that have not received the Lord and are going through that seven-year time of tribulation. And then in verse 32, he says, And it shall come to pass, whoever calls the name of the Lord shall be saved. Uh, it shall come to pass, essentially, in any generation. You can just read it. In any generation, anyone, anyone means anyone, whoever, no matter what their parents, no matter what their ancestors, no matter what their countrymen decide, anyone that says, I want to call upon the name of the Lord, uh, I don't get to see him anymore, but Pastor Dima who's Calvary Chapel pastor in St. Petersburg, Russia. I mean, he grew up in the former Soviet Union, 
told his entire lifetime that God did not exist, told his entire lifetime, and by the way, he's Jewish, he speaks Hebrew, and he speaks Russian, and I don't know if I'll see him again until I get to heaven, but he stayed at our house, him and his wife, and he grew up there, everyone told him that God didn't exist, everyone told him that the Bible was a fairy tale, and out of the blue, he says in his high school to his teacher, I believe there is God, you know, and, and that little bit of Believing God eventually had him hear a radio program that was uh, by Transworld Radio. He heard the gospel. He repented and received Christ. And he goes on, he preaches now from radio in Hebrew and in, uh, and in Russian. And uh, it didn't matter that his aunts, his uncles, his, everyone in his family was an atheist and didn't believe God existed. He was able to say he could call on the name of the Lord personally. Does that make sense? He could call the name, even if nobody else called the name of the Lord, behold, anyone, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, can reverse what everybody else has been doing. Now his, his children are saved and following the Lord. So you can kind of see that God, it doesn't matter the generation, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. And God has been doing that. And if you're a Gentile, then you're grafted into, uh, he goes on to say, um, Mount, for in Mount Zion in Jerusalem, there should be deliverance. And the Lord has said, a remnant whom the Lord calls. Uh, if you're a Gentile, then you're grafted into spiritual Israel and the family of God. If you're Jewish, it's the same exact. You're also in uh, spiritual Israel, but you're also part of the actual Israel nation state that God had set apart to be the priestly nation. And there on Mount Sinai, or not, not Sinai, there on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, in the days to come, there will be millions of restored souls that Jesus brought with him down out of heaven, but also the remnant that comes through the tribulation will also convene there with the saints that come down. So the remnants come through the tribulation as well as the, rem, uh, the remnant that comes with Jesus. Remnant being percentage of people that Jesus had brought as the road to destruction, and many there be to go that way, narrow is the way to eternal life, and few there be that find it. But all the collective saints that have ever answered the call to go the narrow way of Jesus will all be there, the remnant that the Lord has called. So we just covered a couple thousand years in that amount of time. Let's pray. <laughs> I say all that to say, I hope you're walking in His grace and restoration now, because the Holy Spirit allows us to be refreshed today and tomorrow while we wait for the Lord's final fulfillment of these things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again. Uh, for your word, uh, which settles us, which, uh, uh, Lord, it instructs us. Lord, it comforts us. And, and Lord, we pray that we would see, uh, Lord, in us more of this gladness and rejoicing of the marvelous things you've already done. We can look back and see your fulfilled prophecy. We can look at our own salvation. We can look forward and know. We can even look at the landscape around and know that the things that you said would come to pass are coming to pass. But Lord, we pray that, um, uh, that we would, like your servant Joel, be lights and witnesses for you to a people that don't know these truths. And Lord, we pray that you, you would use us even this coming uh, Christmas season and this season of Thanksgiving, Lord, just, just to, just to uh, be able to speak to people that are afar off. And we never know, Lord, if one thing uh, from your word that you prompt us to say couldn't, uh, couldn't turn a soul to you. So we're, Lord, we just pray that you would just continue to grow us, but use us in these, in these times in which we live 
We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great rest of the night and week.